take them with me and turn to Book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And we've been through this so many times, I'm guessing, how many have, we're close to memorizing it. <laughs> All right. Let's do this this morning. Let's get right to where we're at. 9 through 11 is where we're at. We're going to go through this again um, this, this morning. Uh, I have spent a lot of time on this message. It's super powerful. It's super important. And it hits right at home in a lot of things that are going on in our world. The Bible says in verse 9, let, let, let love be without hypocrisy or genuine love. We've been dealing with genuine love. What does genuine love look like? It abhors that which is evil. It clings to that which is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The verses that we're going to be dealing with are not lagging is verse 11 not lagging behind in diligence. In other words, don't be lazy. I will tell you, genuine love isn't lazy. But be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. There is a sense in this text, as I was studying this text, uh, there is this idea of, is these, are these, are these um, commandments God wants, that tells us, we have to do these things. Or are they a result of being born again? What are they? Well, to be honest with you, to answer that question, we're going to do that this morning. Uh, to just give you a brief answer, are they a command or are they a result of true faith? Yes. That is the reality. It's both. Genuine love, as we have found out, is not hypocritical love. It's not self-motivated love. And gave you a verse for that. Hypocritical love is disguised love of self. How can I be nice to somebody and what will I get in return? Like this morning, uh, how am I going to go into a house filled with garbage? What am I going to get out of it? Sick? Maybe. That's the kind of genuine love, doesn't matter. By the way, I think it's a great opportunity to call him, call Tim and try to set that up where you can get in there, where we all can get in there at some point when we have time. This is what genuine love looks like. <laughs> I have no desire to clean a mess and maybe get sick over it and take time out of my business schedule to do so. I have no desire to do that in the flesh. But should I choose to do that for the glory of God? That's the issue, right? God loves, God, genuine love hates evil. Genuine love cleaves to what is good. Genuine love is greater than blood love, depending on the blood love we're talking about. Remember, what we're saying there is genuine love is greater than familial love, family bonds. But the blood of Jesus Christ is what brings us together. Genuine love out-honors one another. We dealt with that one last week. It out-honors one another. It respects others. And this week we're here to the text of genuine love is not lazy Christians are not lazy, are they? The three commands, as someone has said, and I'm going to argue against that a little bit, but in verse 11 seem to be related. 
We have genuine love. It's not to be lazy in diligence. And then we have, the next one is, genuine love is zealous. The antithesis of laziness is zealousness. And genuine love is motivated in serving the Lord. It's, it's quite interesting. He goes along and he gives all these things that happen. This happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And this is what it looks like. Serving the Lord is just kind of out there in the middle of everything. Kind of weird. How many see that? It's almost like we'll get into that. Genuine love, though, is not lazy. The word lazy is often used for indolence or slackness. Instead of caving into inactivity, believers are to be diligent and earnest and disciplined. What is laziness? What is slothfulness? What is sluggardness? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of the heart. Do you want to know a man of character or a woman of character? You will find there a man or a woman of diligence. They're not slothful. They're not lazy. They're not sluggards. Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, we should be alert to the signs of slothfulness and reject the temptation to put forth anything less than our best efforts. Amen? If we're going to do something, do it with all of our mind and our strength, right? The Bible says in Colossians 3, whatsoever you do, do it how? Heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. That's a big deal. How many of you drag to work Monday morning? Why did you bring it up? How many remember dragging to work Monday morning? Uh, listen, folks. The theology of work or the theology of vocation these are very unfamiliar terms with most Christians. But the theology of work and, and the vocation, the heart of it is whatever you're doing, you do it heartily to the Lord and not unto men. Does that change everything? It changes everything. The marks of laziness. A lazy person makes little decisions with a goal of maintaining comfort and taking the easy path. A slugger's choice may include decisions to stay in bed a little longer, <clears throat> extend lunch periods, coffee breaks at work, spend a little time in, spend time in idle chatter. A slothful person may procrastinate or refuse to work in adverse conditions. These actions may seem harmless initially, but soon they, they can set the standard for a way of life. Minutes become hours, become days, and all of a sudden you've lost a whole year. Does that make sense? Proverbs chapter 6, verse 10, yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. Does that sound really good right now? <laughs> so shall thy poverty come as the one that traveleth, and thy want as an, as an armed man. Slothfulness casteth into a deep sleep, and an idle soul shall suffer hunger. As the door turneth upon his hinges, Slow the slothful upon his bed. The sluggard is not a self-starter. To him, one day is as good as the other. He assumes that what he does not do today can be easily done tomorrow. The sluggard does not understand the value of time or meaning of seasons. His basic philosophy is to live for the moment and let the future take care of its own. The slothful person does not consider that he must one day give an account to God for the way He has used His time. Do you know what the Bible says about that? 
redeeming the time, taking advantage of the time that we are given. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24 says, The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. The sluggard will not plow for a reason of the cold. Therefore shall he beg in harvest and have nothing. A slothful person is lethargic in everything he does. Each job becomes a mountain in his path instead of a door of opportunity. If he, visit, if he is visited by success, he does not recognize it or value it. To the sluggard, success simply means more work. Thus, he allows opportunities to slip by and permits half-completed jobs to spoil. Proverbs chapter 24 says it this way, I went by the field of the slothful, and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding, and lo, it was all grown over with thorns, and nettles had covered the face thereof, and the stone wall thereof was broken down. The slothful leaves disaster in its wake of doing nothing. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 27, the, tw the slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the substance of a diligent man is precious. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18, but much slothfulness the building decayeth. Through idleness of the hand the house droppeth through. When the sluggard is not sleeping, he thinks about the things he wants to do and the things he wants to get. However, he never takes action to make those hope a reality. The tension between his restless mind and inactivity body produce destructive frustrations. Proverbs 21, the desire of the slothful killeth him. For his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, and the righteous giveth and spareth not. A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. Proverbs 18, there's so many verses. One of the verses I have here that we'll bring out is Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, what? Do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. In other words, work for the night is coming. Throughout Scripture, we are, we are challenged to work diligently and to do all things in the manner that brings glory to God. Turn away from the tendency of the slothfulness. Be not slothful in business, but be fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. The counterpart to laziness is the next position he takes. Genuine love is not only not lazy, it is not sluggish, it is not slothful. Genuine love is also fervent, the antithesis of it. Fervency, what does the term fervency say? Maybe some of you have it in your translations, burning in the Spirit. How many have that? That's the idea, this burning in the Spirit. The counterpart of laziness is fervency. Fervency is expressed in the words burning with zeal in the Spirit. The parallel with this is in Acts chapter 18. The man who has instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing, not, knowing only the baptism of John. This is talking about the ministry of Apollos. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Acts chapter 18, verse 24. I'm going to read some of this and you'll see what type, what zealousness looks like. Now there came a man from Ephesus, a Jew named Apollos. He was a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well versed in the scripture. In other words, he was saturated in the text. He was renewing his mind daily. Amen? I don't know how you can renew your mind daily and not be zealous of what God has done. Amen? He was an eloquent man, well-versed in Scripture. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. 
though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Aprila and Cosuela heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of the Lord to him more accurately. And when he wished to, cr and when he wished to cross over to Acacia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. On his arrival, he greatly helped those through grace had become believers. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by scriptures that the Messiah is Jesus. I mean, that tells you everything you know, need to know what it mean to be zealous in spirit. His burning, his speaking boldly, speaking eloquently. These are, the, these are what happens to those who are genuinely love the Lord. Genuine love. They are zealous for the Lord. For there it is said that Apollos had burning enthusiasm. Yeah. I don't know what your problem is. Whatever. Okay. How many have heard those words with that attitude? Yeah, yeah. Ugh. You're a sloth. You're slothful in studying Scripture. Because if you're serious about Scripture, you'll be in fire up for the Lord. Amen? By the way, you're on fire for the Lord. Do you get that term? Burning, zealous, fire. It's quite interesting. There is a debate, by the way, over this word. What does it mean to be burning in the Spirit? What does it mean to be zealous in the Spirit? The debate is whether the burning in the Spirit relates to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit. Both can be supported by this verse and its context. Therefore, we need to expand the study to to other texts to help understand more accurately what the author has intended us to understand. Believe it or not, scholars arguing on both the Holy Spirit or the human spirit use this passage right here, Acts chapter 18, to prove their point. How does that work? <laughs> See, it's all about human. No, it's all about the Holy Spirit. No, it's human. No, it's spirit. I'm going to get what I'm saying. Is it the human spirit or is it the Holy Spirit? The word here that is used is the word pneuma. Now, what is pneuma? That's the Greek word. I said it in an American way, an English way, so you can find, figure out what pneuma sounds like. What does pneuma sound like? That you probably, if you're a contractor, you use every day. Okay, air, wind, pneumatic. Pneumonia, if you're a doctor, what does that mean? Water in your air, lungs, right? Moisture, liquid. So this pneuma has an idea of wind or air. Refers, refers most of the time to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the pneuma like a dove descending upon him. The Holy Spirit, literally the Holy Spirit. But Numa doesn't always talk about the Holy Spirit. Numa also refers to the human spirit in many passages. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul himself speaking, For God whom I serve in my spirit, in my what? Numa in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness as to the unceasing I make mention of you. Numa is sometimes, in some instances, referred to both the Holy Spirit and the human spirit. The Bible says, for if I pray, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome? I pray with the spirit, and I pray with the mind, and I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of understand, ungifted say to the amen at your giving of thanks? Since he has done, does not know what you are saying. In essence, in this text, we find both the Holy Spirit and the human spirit involved in this word pneuma. So, Paul, as well as others, 
slide from man's spirit to the Holy Spirit rather easily in the text. Which probably tells us we certainly do not completely understand the complete sense of the word when it was written. That being said, let's just be practical here. The facts are, God in His sovereignty has specifically given you a spirit that defines, in a sense, who you are. Is that not true? As Christians, what should define us? Who is Jesus Christ? Amen. Who defines us is Jesus Christ. What defined us is what? The spiritual gift that you've been given. I will use my own life as an example. I am known as pastor to many people. That is not my name, but that is my giftedness. Does that make sense? That's the exact issue here. God, let's, let's, okay, God has, in His sovereignty, has specifically given you a spirit that defines, in a sense, who you are. We call it, could be giftedness. Some people call it or use the term, your, your, uh, uh, your attitude, your um, personality. These are words that are used to define that. But let's just think about this. Did God give you a spirit that defines you? Yes or no? Yeah. If I had uh, Tim Zarin next to me, can we def could, it, could we like put blankets in front of us, you couldn't see us, and we started talking about things, could you tell the difference? Yes or no? Absolutely. We are different people. We have been given a measure of faith that's different to individuals, just like a fingerprint. Amen? So God has designed you in eternity past. Is that not true? Amen? So not only did God design us in eternity past, God purposed you, for the found, purposed you has a purpose for you from before the foundation of the world. Is that true? God planned you and your inner spirit to accomplish that greater plan. Is that not true? The spirit that you have within you, obviously we're not talking about the human spirit here, the, the, the Holy Spirit here, we're talking about the human spirit. The human spirit that God has planted in you, the person who you are, that spirit is gifted from God. Amen. Now many people say, well, well, that's, you know, that's kind of weird because because your parents influenced you to become who you are. Is that a true statement? Your surroundings influenced who you are. Is that a true statement? Your culture, your country, your government, your, you just name it, your boss, all these people have influenced you, right? So that must be the you. No, who planned all that? Who planned every aspect of that? God did. God has placed you in an environment and culture that shapes your spirit. It makes who you, who you are. When our children who are raised in our home, church, and Grand Rapids culture move away, they experience at least some culture shock and can in many ways realize that, man, I miss what home brought. It's... I find it ironic and I find it ex, 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 just joyful that people that go away, they, I can't wait to get out of here. And then a year later, I can't wait to get home. Why? I've had a young lady tell me, it's crazy. There's no friends around here. There are a bunch of drunks. They want to go party. They They tell me that it offends me that I don't like, I think it's sin that LG, LGBT community is sinful. That offends me. And it's all over. I don't get it. And this is the local church we're talking about. I'll tell you what, folks, it's bad out there. It sometimes is worse in here. The attitude and some of the culture the parents were raised in 
affected the spirit of their children. That is true. But who, apart from God, designed the parents to raise the children? God has had His hand in every aspect of this. God has made you the way He has made you. I'm going to pick on Jake <laughs> as he rolls his eyes. Jake and I, in our personalities, are totally opposite. How many would agree? Do you agree with that? <laughs> there you go. I mean, Jake is just quiet. He does say things sometimes, but he's not adamant. He's not passionate about that in this way, in outwardly way. But man, get me on a free grace movement, I'm passionate. Or something, I mean, man, I just want to, mm, I want to set things straight. Now, Jake has a very different ministry than I have. Amen? But the ministry is the same in that we serve each other. We just serve each other in different ways. Totally different ways. And Jake never needs to change from being Jake. Amen? You shouldn't want to be like somebody else. God has given you your unique giftedness to serve in the way He has planned. Very unique to you. To be sure, both believers and unbelievers possess an inner man which can be known as their spirit, if you will. It can be understood as their personality, their essence, their real person, their personhood. But all of this in the end must fall under the heading of God's perfect plan being worked out one tiny person at a time. Amen? It's exactly what it is. Therefore, it can be stated that the spirit of man in the end is due to the God's sovereign plan. In believers, for a direct work they are created to serve in. In unbelievers, where God was allowed to, in unbelievers, God has allowed evil to be used to accomplish his eternal plan. Believers are also given by God not only their human spirit, but also was gifted at justification the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Therefore, it can be stated emphatically, believers who are the audience that Paul was writing to possess both the human spirit specifically assigned by God to serve in a specific work, although tainted by depravity and the means by which this work is done is by the other spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. Amen. So when we say, is this the Holy Spirit or is this human spirit? I don't know. And yes. Because in the end, God does it all. Amen. Therefore, it can be stated emphatically, believers who are the audience that Paul is writing possess both the whole human spirit specifically assigned by God to serve in a specific work and are also given the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out that specific work. Amen. The gifts are part of that inner man. Schreiner states it this way very well. Believers are to burn and seethe in their spirits but the means by which this is done is by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's the same idea. It's both. BDAG, I'm going to use... I, I, I'm writing papers now, basically, for every sermon. Do you know what BDAG is? So I need you to know some of these terms. Anybody know what BDAG is? BDAG is a lexicon that helps us understand how the English word and uh, what, what the Greek word says in our New Testament instance and how the English, how we can understand that in English. Does that make sense? It's how they relate to one another. It says it this way, God's being as controlling influence with focus on association with humans, spirit. Spirit is that which is differentiates God from everything that is not God. 
and the divine power that produces all divine essence, as the divine element in which all divine life is carried on, as the bearer of every application of the divine will. All those who belong to God possess or receive this spirit and hence have a share in God's life. This spirit also serves to distinguish Christians from unbelievers. The spirit is greeted as one who enters devotees and in, in accordance with God's will separates them from themselves, from the purely human part of their nature. In essence, the presence of the Holy Spirit distinguishes the saved from the unsaved. Because we all have unique spirits, if you will. Unique essences of what we are. But God, but believers have one, have one extra, if you will, the most important, the Holy Spirit. Now, so is this Holy Spirit or is this human? Yeah, it's both. God uses our individuality and He uses the Holy Spirit to accomplish His will. This term burning is extremely important. The word demands, as reference to the Holy Spirit, a burning that is involved. It also suggests the image of boiling for the Holy Spirit. The Bible says in Isaiah, the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. There are multiple passages that deal with the Holy Spirit burning. Isaiah 30, burning in His anger, indignation, consuming fire, torrent. Matthew chapter 3 and Luke chapter 3, both of our dealing with he baptized with the Holy Spirit and by what? Fire. Acts chapter 2, 3, and there appeared to them tongues of when the Holy Spirit showed up for the first time to indwell people permanently. Got that? He had showed up in the Old Testament off and on, but for the first time permanently, he showed up. And what was the picture seen as? How was it depicted? Fire. A burning, a fire. And there appeared to them tongues of fire. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.19 If the Holy Spirit is depicted as fire, and He is, then it makes sense that we not quench the Spirit. What does that mean? Throw water on the fire. Right? By the way, I never really even put those two together until this sermon. Why did he use the word quench? Well, because he's fire. Even in eschatological things, in Revelation chapter 4, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Spirits, for some reason, they always do this. So what is this? What is the practical application of this fervent burning in spirit? In other words, is it like, is it like we have to be outwardly, boisterously, loudly passionate? Is that what every Christian should look like? Or is it an inner zeal, an inner burning? What, what are we talking about here? What is the practical application of this fervent burning in the spirit? Practically, not every believer is emotionally charged passionately proclaiming the truth of the Word of God outwardly. Matter of fact, to command or apply burning in the Spirit means a flashy or loud, pe a loud, pre a flashy or loud preacher would be a mistake. Remember, we are gifted how? Uniquely, individually. We are not all, all passionately loud. Amen? We all have our niche. We all have our place. I will tell you this. A 13-year-old young lady that just lost her cat would be better served by my wife than myself. Does that make sense? But she still needs to be helped. I'm just not the guy with the right gift. <laughs> Does that, are, you, are you following this? All right. So this, this burning isn't like, got to be loud, got to be boisterous, got to be animated, got to be passionate. That's not it. Now, can it be it? Sure, it may result like that, but not in everybody. 
It's going to be different. The, simp- the burning cannot simply be this emotional and passionate outbursts. It may involve those things, but God cannot be double speaking in the text here. We are not cookies made with the same cookie cutter. What we believers possess exactly, the Holy Spirit, must not be confused with the uniqueness of gifted graces. How we serve through our God-given gift are those graces. To answer this question, what does burning or zealous in spirit mean practically? What, do we, what does this mean? What does it look like? Well, what we need to do is first of all answer another question before we get to that question. The other question is, is this a command or a statement of fact in this text? Well, let's look at the whole text and just see if we can figure this out. Is God giving us, in other words, instead of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, do we now have 20 in the New? What is it? Well, let's go back and see what it says in the text. Go all the way back to our beginning. Verses 1 through 2, I'm going to go through this quickly. Let us look at the text as a whole. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than they ought to think. That's verse 3. So let's get in there. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, therefore, I command you, I urge you, how? By the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does the sacrifice look like? It's acceptable to God. Why do you do this? It's your reasonable service. It's what's expected from who you now are. Did you follow that? How does this happen? Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. That's how this happens. But be transformed in your mind. Amen. This results in the renewing of our mind. Why? So that you may prove what the will of God is and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 3, what is the spirit or the attitude of the inner man and why do the believers have this spirit? The Bible says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think. How are you going to become a humble person? Read the Bible. Renew your mind in the text of the word. How are we going to have the second part of verse 3? But to think as to have sound judgment. How are we going to think biblically if we're not in the text truly? God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Verse 4. For we have as many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. We are gifted to serve God by serving others. Verse 5, so we who are many, but we are all synonymously together in what we are, one body. We are many, and we all have different gifts, but we're one body in Christ. We make up a body of individual members. Those, my hand feeds my mouth. My lips taste if it's oatmeal or Twix. But I need my mind to make my hand and my lips to able to, feed, to be able to feed me. How many understand that? That's exactly what he's saying. So we who are many, but we're synonymously together in one, are one body in Christ. And individual members and the purpose is one another. Verse 5. Verse 6. <clears throat> Use the unique God gift God has given you, don't covet somebody else's gift. Since we have gifts that different, different, differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, then you do what? Prophesy. If teach, then you do what? Teach. If exhort, then you do what? Exhortation. Listen, what defines these gifts? What do these looks look like? We know all this, right? 
What does the exercise of them look like as one is constantly renewing their mind? So this person is renewing their mind. They become more humble and more humble as they see the truth and they confess. They get right with God and they grow in the grace of God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like verses 9 through 13, which is where we're at today. Love will be without hypocrisy. Amen. Abhor that which is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind which we're in this morning. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, preserving in tribulation, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. If command means do this or else, these are not commands. Amen? Instead, these truths may be better understood as facts that will define a believer as he or she is renewing their mind through the Word of God. This is the outcome of a saturation of the Word of God. Explanation. Let love be without hypocrisy. Yeah, but sometimes... um, But sometimes we are hypocritical. Abhor that which is evil. Yeah, but sometimes we lose sight of loving God. Cling to that which is good. But we don't always because we get worldly distracted. Are you following <clears throat> be devoted to one another in brotherly love, but sometimes we get mad. We get mad because we lack humility. And we lack humility because we're not saturated in the Word. Give preference to one another, but sometimes we think we deserve more. Pride. Not lagging behind in diligence, but well, we are sporadic and not consistent because we serve in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Fervent in spirit. Unfortunately, serving God is not our only passion or desire. We also like to serve self. Serving the Lord. Sometimes we do always, we do always do because we are serving the Lord by doing it. We have growth that is needed. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, you go on. The answer to this question is: is this a command or is it, or is it an outcome of a God-focused life? The answer is. Yes, it is. The truth is, when we are God-focused by saturation of the Word, these are not commands, but truly outcomes of what has already happened. This is a big deal. Phariseeism and legalism both would look at these as commands, either to obey or to disobey. A believer who is renewing their mind via the text view this as, well, that's just a logical result of who they are, and they revel in them. Does that make sense? Which leads us to this burning question. If burning and zealousness are outward emotional actions, are, if they're commands, we all can show these things in the flesh for a time. It becomes, by the way, a self-made work. This cannot be what the text is saying. For instance, Going to college, we listened to a preacher. Everyone wanted to be like him. Is that right or wrong? We want to preach like him. So we get up there. If you ever heard Dr. Potter preach, his face. I love Dr. Potter. He is one of my favorite men. He would sit on the. They always had fundamentalists, and I don't understand this, but they always set the preacher right back here. I despise that. The janitor should be sitting right back here. They are just as important as a pastor. Amen? Regardless, that's a different thing. Regardless, he'd stand back there and he would sing with every ounce of off-tune note he could. 
it was the greatest thing in the world because his love for the Lord was all over. He did not care. Guess what? That hasn't changed. And then he'd get up and he'd be preaching. And I'm telling you, he had, he had hair. <laughs> it would flop down into his face and he'd, he'd flip it back and his red face would just glow. And he'd get down, he'd scream at the top of his lungs. And so at preaching class, how many of that yeah, the guy's doing this. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Now I understand there is a time to imitate Paul as he's imitating Christ. This is not one of them. I will tell you, if the text doesn't motivate you to show your passion, however that may be, that's a problem. It's self-work. It's self-made. It's man-made. Now, this zeal that the text is talking about is not this boisterous, passionate, emotional express of, of, of how much it, this is just is burning within you. It's not loud. It's not, not necessarily. This cannot be what the text is saying. What burning and zeal is? is the same within believers. Is that a fair question? What is it that I possess and Jake possess? Since I've already used him as an example. and so the, We both possess this zeal if we're truly born again. What is it? What is this burning? What are we talking about? Let me ask you, do you remember sitting in the service when you were convinced that I'm a sinner and dead in my sins and you trusted Christ to fix that? Do you remember that? Let me ask you, was there a burning of the Holy Spirit at that moment in your life? Oh yeah. And every one of us have been there. Ah, there's something in common. And what did that burning eventually turn into? What does it look like? When you were first born again, were you excited about loving the Lord? That your first love, remember the text talks about? Let me ask you this. I'm a believer, but this sin is constantly befudding me. I need to confess it. Let me ask you, you're sitting in a service and you have new information and your sin is revealed in your heart. Does that burn within you? When the government legalizes and encourages wickedness and selfishness, does that burn within you? Yes or no? We don't glorify sin. We don't like sin. It's just, ew. Is that a burning that all of us have? Why? It's not some ecstatic thing that came from the stars, amen? It's the Word of God and the Holy Spirit helping us understand what that is and hating the evil that these things are. We all possess that. They're all the negative examples of burning, and we've all had them. If we are convicted, how are we convicted? By what? The Holy Spirit. By the way, if you ever tell a pastor, Pastor, man, you convicted me, that should put shame on the pastor. The text convicts. The text convicts. It bothers us to sin. These are negative examples of burning. The text was previously went through, dealt with this very principle. It bothers us to sin. It burns us. We stand guilty before God and are ashamed. But I don't believe that the negative aspect of burning is the direction the author is taking us. Instead, it's the positive aspect of the burning. Amen? And what is the positive aspect of the burning? Let me ask you this. I'm a believer and my friend needs the Lord. Is there a burning there when you see them or think of them? 
Yes or no? Right. Why? You want to tell them the truth, right? I'm a member of the body of Christ. And no one is taking up the torch to serve the body and fill in the blank of that giftedness. That needs to be done. I love it when people say, why isn't anybody doing this? Go ahead. It's burning within your heart. Take care of it. Amen? I think there was a verse we talked about. If I'm a teacher, then I burn to teach. If I'm a preacher, I'm burning to preach. The gift of preaching is so prominent within my inner man that I'm outside my comfort zone when I'm not preaching. It is my life. It's my greatest desire. It is what defines me. It shows up in my everyday life. I want to proclaim the Word in every aspect I can. If I only knew the Word of God better, I could. I would be able to do more proclaiming with different contexts. I have so much farther to go, but the zealous desire motivates and urges more study and growth. How many understand what that burning is? Amen? It's to use the gift that God has given you. I can't help but do it. I want to serve people. I want to see their happy faces. I want to encourage them. I want to love them. I want to feed them in my case. How many follow this? So this burning is not some ecstatic, weird thing that takes place that everybody scratches their head at. It's not some put on show for the world in the pulpit. And the reason we know that is the last command in verse 11. What is it? The last command is this. Everything a Christian does is motivated in what? Serving the Lord. That's the last part of the verse. Serving the Lord. The last commandment in uh, the last... I, I don't want to say command because it's just not right. But the last phrase that's brought up here, serving the Lord, is extremely helpful. Is it not true that Paul is clearly dealing with spiritual gifts in this text? Yes or no? Okay, I'll ask it again. Is it not true that Paul is clearly dealing with spiritual gifts in the context that we are in? Yes or no? Yes. Absolutely. Is it not true that Paul has clearly stated that these gifts are unique to each believer? Absolutely. The foot is not the hand. The nose is not the eye. The eye is not the throat. The throat is not the foot. We get it. Measure of faith. Is it not true that all believers are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit and in that we have our commonality? Yes or no? Absolutely. Each of us are as differently gifted as our unique fingerprint. Your human spirit is one of a kind unique because it, is, it has in its possession the who you are is your giftedness. And here's the problem. As a result, and we'll get to the problem in a second, I believe that Paul is trying to is tying spirit, both human and Holy Spirit, together in practice. So why does the serving of the Lord phrase get into the list list? And here's the problem. This is a deep thinking truth that is extremely important to text to the text. There are times where the gift becomes the God. Preachers are very susceptible to such aberrations of a God-given gift. They may demand, <clears throat> they may desire man's approval at the expense of God's approval. They may be motivated by money and not by pleasing God. They may desire honor, public recognition. They may be motivated by climbing the ladder, not digging into the heart that needs work. Sometimes the gift 
is greater than the God that gave it in their mind. Does that make sense? The truth of serving the Lord is absolutely foundational to every Christian and what they do. Extremely foundational. How many want to know why? How? None of you? Too bad. I have written down in my notes, glad you asked. Boy, was that presumptuous. Let me ask you, when do you cease to be a Christian? You're a Christian at church, right? Oh, wow, we put on our Christian everything. I even have a Christian, not me personally, but I've heard I even have a Christian hair clip, whatever they call it. Well, what about work? What about a home? What about at play? Well, you say, this sounds like a dumb question, but let's do some digging by focusing on the work issue. If you are a true believer, you are a believer at work also, correct? What do believers do at work that unbelievers do not do, and how does that affect everything? Well, it's all about the motivation. Here's where Christians get it wrong, and this is what's so important. What is the motivation? What does a Christian do at work? Why? Why does a Christian work? Give me some answers. Help me out here. Why does a Christian work? What's that? Earn money. Right. Money, right? We all work to make money. I got to make money to live. Some people, Christians go to work to make money. Some people go to, or go to work to make a living. Or let me ask, I might say it better, a lifestyle. Some Christians go to work just because of tradition. What is the motivational difference between a saved person and an unsaved person in those definitions? Not a thing. Nothing. Okay, okay, think spiritual. Thinks, okay, well, okay, I got a pastor. Well, think spiritual. Okay, I go to work so I can witness. Is that what your boss is thinking? Is that why you go to work? So you can witness. So you can be a light in the world. So I can give and help others. Oh, those are noble motivations but they are not the foundational motivations that will truly define the difference between the saved and the unsaved. And frankly, you're, you're depraving God of His glory by doing that very thing. When you go to work, you work as to the Lord. As to the Lord. The greatest motivation is tied to a Christian's giftedness and his love for the Lord. Reality is, God wants a Christian to work and to serve Him. Let me ask you, is there a difference in quality and quantity of production if you are pleasing your boss versus pleasing God? Every one of us sitting here have looked over our shoulder at one time and seen if the boss was looking. Why? You can answer that in our own mind. What's that? Did someone say something? Wow, I'm hearing things now. I'm going to be in the next room next to Pat now. <laughs> I'm getting that bad. <sighs> Is there a difference in quality and quantity of production if you're looking over your shoulder to see who is looking Versus who you are loving. Reality is the difference is night and day. God's intention for each and every one of us is to serve Him in everything. The motivation to serve Him in everything is to love Him. When we truly love Him, He will use the giftedness He has given to us to serve others and 
This service is empowered by the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. The result is quality and quantity of production and a joy that truly is unmatched because it's all motivated in God's love for us that produces a love for Him. Wow, that awesome. Did you follow that? Should I say it again? Because that is the essence of this whole thing. God's intention is for each of us to serve Him in everything. The motivation to serve Him in everything is to love Him. It's founded and rooted on loving Him. When we truly love Him, we will use the giftedness He has given us to serve others, and this service is empowered by the giftedness of the Holy Spirit, the burning, the zeal, the not laziness. The result is a quality and quantity production and a joy that is truly unmatched because all of this work is motivated in God's love for us which has produced a love for Him. Amen. Therefore, serving the Lord is extremely fitting for the context in hand. If you want to break it down to a nice little ditty, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is irreplaceable. If Jesus is Lord of your service, what kind of difference would that practically make in your church service, in your work ethic, in your home, and in your play? One commentator states it this way, the spiritual manifestations must be... Okay, this is the last paragraph, okay? One commentator says it this way, and I disagree with him, and we're going to go through it. Spiritual manifestations must be subject to the Lordship of Christ. That is true. And this fits the context. If you confine the context to spiritual gifts, if they are confined to within the confines of the church, I believe this is an incomplete statement. Our God-given gifts are not to be exclusively used within the church only, although that is their purpose. Amen. We don't serve the Lord by using the gifts only on Sunday. We are not Christians only on Sunday. We never stop being a Christian. A more clear and complete statement should be this. All manifestations in a Christian life are subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's when they're motivated in loving the Lord. So when you, we don't have one of these guys. So when that guy with the honey truck comes into your house, outside your house, into the septic tank, throws his big old pipe to suck all that beautiful stuff out of there. He does it because he's serving the Lord by serving others. Now, how many of those guys, I mean, what do you do for, oh man, I, I carry outhouses around. Woohoo! Right? Have we ever seen that? How many times do we say, see Christians, yeah. Got to go to work tomorrow. Here's what you're saying. I am being made to serve other people tomorrow. That's not genuine love. That's hypocritical love. I don't care what you are. I mean, I do care, but it doesn't matter what you are. It doesn't matter a bit. What matters is we have to do it we have to do that work for the honor and glory of God. We do it to please Him. We're serving Him. Let me ask you, is it easier to serve God than it is man? In a sense it is. Because a true Christian loves Him and wants to do His best for Him. The boss, eh, not so much. Just ask my wife. We make mistakes. I will end with this. 
The motivating foundation for Christian living is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The motivation, the motivating foundation for Christian living is submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that whether therefore you eat or drink, or, and you could give a list with a dot, dot, dot. We're all serving the Lord. That is the very purpose that we're here. That is, according to Genesis chapter 2.15, that is the very fact, the very reason we were created was to serve God. Amen? We need to act like when we were created. So when we do all these tasks that are difficult and hard, we do it because we love the Lord. Let me ask you, if everything you did was motivated by loving the Lord, would things be different? I know they would in my life. Sometimes I just don't like the people I'm working for. God sent me a little nugget of truth that I needed to hear this week and I didn't feel I didn't like it. My family and I had been working way too many hours this week. We were in a house till 2.45 in the morning one night. The next morning we got up <clears throat> at 6 and went to the house and the blessed mother-in-law called me lazy. It's hard to work for that type of person. But I'm not working for that person. I'm working for the Lord. And that changes everything. Everything. What motivates us to do what we do? Because that is the essence of what he's talking about in verses 9 through 11. This is what it looks like. We have two opportunities this week to do this, to practice these things. Both of them are difficult. We have two men that one's in a nursing home right now and one's having surgery right now. They need our help. Yeah, but this, yeah, but that. Hey, we're serving God, not them. Right? Yes, I understand we're serving them, but we're serving God. The moment we lose sight of who we're serving is the moment pride kicks in. They don't deserve that. Oh, we don't deserve this. Are we serving God? Amen? That makes sense? Rodney, I'm going to have you stand and close this word of prayer.